You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to TC's podcast on the go. I'm Chin Hui Eng, Program Director from Toronto Centre. Today, we are going to be talking about the people side of supervision. We are going to be taking an intimate look at the development and retention of talent in financial supervisory agencies. As many of our listeners would well appreciate, financial supervision is an exercise in judgment and a craft in itself. So as part of developing talent, many senior supervisors would traditionally train rookie supervisors in what we would say is an apprenticeship model in the craft of supervision. For example, you know, the art of interviewing management of financial institutions, conducting walkthroughs of internal control processes, et cetera, et cetera. Now, these are things that can be written down in a supervisory manual, and no doubt you will all have one very, very thick manual in your institution. But the final points often come through on-the-job training, through supervisors observing, learning, and then doing what their seniors do. And in that process, the organizational way of doing things, the institutional memory, the ethics of being a public official, gets inculcated in a very hands-on way. But this is really a long-term process, and financial supervisors everywhere often feel that they do not have the experienced staff that they need for the job. So with us today to talk about these issues of talents development, organizational culture, and preserving institutional memory in public institutions is Dane Hussein. Great to have you with us, Dane. That's great. I'm really happy to join you today, Chen Wing. Thank you. Dane is currently the Director, Talents and Performance Practice at Jerry Lewis Incorporated, a Toronto-based management consulting firm um, that Toronto Centre has worked with for many years now that focuses on corporate strategy, learning and change communication. Dane currently works with organisations to attract, develop, and retain the key talents needed to drive sustainable results. So Dane, let's start with the big picture. Why should institutions, specifically financial supervisory agencies in our case, be concerned about talents development and retention? Jinri, thank you for this question. Uh, This is a really important one right now because as particularly in the the cost-constrained environment that we're currently in, the reality is, is that, you know, it's important for financial supervisors to consider two perspectives when it comes to being prepared to attract, develop, and retain talent required to drive their strategy. The first is an internal perspective. This tends to be where we see most of the attention is traditionally placed, but we must also take a second perspective, a macro lens, to assess and determine the wider strategy to mitigate these risks 
also in the organizations that are within our purview. While this may be limited in some cases as to how much you can actually have direct authority over these things, there is an opportunity to influence this. For example, ensuring organizations have regularly updated leadership resource or succession plans, and that those plans are aligned with their development uh, strategies or their top line strategies. Uh, this has never really been more critical than it is today. So, you know, talent development tactics like apprenticing needs to be part of their larger integrated talent management strategy. Supervisory agencies need to ensure that they first take a look inside their own kitchens to ensure that they can provide guidance to other organizations. So you need to start off first at home. Thank you, Dane. I like what you said about internal and external perspectives and the need for succession planning. I'm wondering if we can zoom a little bit into what we talked at the beginning um, about on-the-job training, about this apprenticing. Uh, and I'm sure you can tell us more about parallels or contrasts with other trades and other types of organizations. Is this apprenticeship model really the best way for training financial supervisors? And more importantly, can it be systematized to ensure quality and consistency? It's a, that's a, a really important point. So I'm going to start off by first saying it's important to first realize that while HR certainly has a role to play in helping organizations have access to, you know, the workforce that they need to drive their strategy in the future, this cannot solely be driven by HR. Many successful organizations that we work with in the private, public, or not-profit sectors are realizing more and more today, more so than ever, that talent, attraction, development, and engagement needs to be a shared responsibility across various functional departments in each organization. The second thing I'd say is, you know, you mentioned the proven practice of the apprenticeship model and the traditional role that that's played in development within the organizations. Uh, to facilitate and preserve the institutional knowledge that has taken many people, you know, several years um, and, and entire careers to amass. And this is a very common practice, and it's a very widely held and proven practice. Um, but this is also something that is going to become more and more critical, particularly in the next five to ten years, because as we start to see the exit of many baby boomers transition out of the workforce, the need for this is going to exponentially grow. So this exodus um, is likely to create a far more um, significant requirement for organizations to have a plan in place to do this. Because traditionally, much of this institutional knowledge tends not to be you know, written down anywhere. So there's no, there's no manuals or guides or any of that stuff. So we really need to ensure um, whatever your role is within the organization, you have a role to play in this process. It's not just an HR thing. The final thing I'd say is, uh, you know, financial supervisors look at this and they look at, you know, everything that they do to help people develop. So it might be mentorship. It might be the best uh, training programs. Uh, it's important to recognize that it needs to be bigger than this. You need to also look to ensure, like as you said, making sure that you have access to a talent pool that has the right set of skills that is necessary to sustain your, your performance going not, not just today, but also into the future. 
So we've already seen, you know, if you look back and, you know, what we've learned over the pandemic months in the, you know, the previous uh, seven to eight months, um, how technology has really enabled us and has really been almost a savior for many organizations to continue to function. And we see this continuing to be the case, particularly in knowledge-based roles, where many organizations are, you know, just waking up to the reality that they now have to look at sourcing talent, not just from locally, but also from around the globe. So I think there's an opportunity for organizations here to see this not only as a risk, but also as an opportunity to, you know, look at uh, job markets that are beyond your typical geographic restrictions or constraints um, that they would typically tap into, and to really look at the opportunities here for opening up the, um, the field to a whole new set of talent. Right. So there's a real opportunity here to to build your talent pools and to make those talent pools a lot deeper, because oftentimes uh, within organizations, even if there is a talent pool, sometimes there, you know, you tend to see the same names appearing over and over again from multiple positions within the same organization. And that's a real risk um, that we see. And, and, and it's a very common one, unfortunately. Um, where organizations tend to prioritize a few individuals and um, those are the names that kept, you know, keep coming up again as you, you start to look at, you know, what is your succession plan? What does your succession uh, pool look like? It really is about passing on the knowledge and the experience and skill sets, as you said, um, while at the same time sort of preserving some diversity in the gene pool, if you like, so that you know, there's constant renewal and um, supervisors can deal with the new challenges that the world throws at them. So all these elements are part of, I guess, for want of a better word, resilience in what we call um, institutional memory and culture, which is absolutely critical for public institutions uh, to do their jobs. So, you know, and we also talked about generations, about uh, you know, um, training younger supervisors. So I, I want to, uh, if I wonder if you could comment a little bit about this generational transfer. How can financial supervisors really pass on the accumulated experience of generations of supervisors, especially those who have dealt with crises in the past, to the current generation as they grapple with the crises that come their way? Right. So, you know, this is another area of paralysis that we see sometimes with organizations where they can get stuck or sometimes they're perhaps unaware even of some of the implications of not having a plan to respond to this. Uh, in one Harvard Business Review article, Ron Ashkenaz, a management consultant, remarked in being able to speak to a recent request that he received from a group of senior managers at a company that he'd previously worked with on a topic that, you know, he felt, he already felt that this company was already really good at. And he recalled being puzzled until he spoke to the senior team. And then he realized that the institutional knowledge that he thought was previously there was now clearly missing, since many of the new team were in new roles. So this can happen, right? Uh, organizations are, are living, breathing organisms, so to speak. Um, and so when this happens, the organizations, uh, instead of reacting or having to react to that, you should anticipate that this will happen. 
Um, so what can you do? First, I think organizations need to have a, an explicit strategy for what you want to pass on and what you want to preserve. Don't assume that it will just happen because science shows us that it won't. Making this an institutional goal for your organization needs to be a team effort, not just something that HR solves or HR leads or HR is solely responsible for. The second thing Ron Ashkenaz said was identify the few things that you want every member of your team to know and to be able to do. So he suggests figuring out how to turn implicit assumptions into explicit expectations. So this may seem very simple or it seem really easy to do, but I promise you this is not something that many teams spend a lot of time doing because they make the assumption, unfortunately, the assumption that they do make is that everyone will do this. And oftentimes it doesn't actually occur. The third thing Ashkenaz suggested was using technology to enable the gathering, maintenance, and the sharing of this knowledge across the organization. And I think, you know, organizations can do this to various uh, degrees of effectiveness. Um, you know, so creating common processes for all teams to capture um, common practices, best practices. Um, he cited a, a really strong example in Intel Corporation that used Intelpedia to capture and share important terms or events or facts with employees. You know, there needs to be a shift to open this up, though, within organizations to ensure that this type of knowledge is, is not only being contributed to and being used by individuals being formally mentored, but everyone else within the organization. So it becomes a, a pool of shared meaning. Um, for that entire team that's involved in delivering on your, on your strategy. The final thing I'd say is don't wait to get started. Oftentimes we can tell ourselves that, you know, this is not the right time for, for doing so, but I promise you that now is always the best time to get started with something like this because uh, there will never be one perfect time to begin this journey. It is a marathon, it's not a sprint. It's not something that you're going to be able to change overnight. Um, and so I think you need to, as an organizational leader, set your objectives and set your expectations um, according to this. Um, trying not to boil the ocean, and those things are not very helpful mindsets in creating and executing on your strategy. I think what you said about you know, um, gathering, maintaining, and sharing uh, knowledge across the organization, that really resonated with me. Um, as public institutions, as financial supervisors, I think one of the key uh, elements that we have to maintain is a sort of common stance um, towards the institutions that we supervise. And that consistency in public policy you know, is very important. Um, and that starts with basically uh, retaining institutional memory and best practices in the organization. So, but let's assume that um, a financial supervisory agency has done all that. Uh, it has invested in training the juvenile supervisors, is invested in uh, preserving institutional memory. And those junior supervisors have now gained competence and not only competence, but confidence in their jobs after some years. Uh, now, these supervisors then become valuable assets, not only to the employers, 
but they also become valuable assets to everyone else in the financial sector. So in that sense, financial supervisory agencies are almost like providing a public good in training you know, competent supervisors uh, for the whole financial sector. And then some of them do leave public service for the private sector. So I'm wondering, could we talk a little bit about this maybe slightly uncomfortable topic about staff attrition, which is, I think, a, a very present reality for all of us who uh, work in financial supervisory agencies. So how do we deal with staff attrition? Absolutely. So first, let me just acknowledge um, the discomfort that you're you're mentioning, right? Um, it made me think of a quote uh, that I, I apologize. I don't know who to attribute this to, but it does resonate for me with what you just said. You know, instead of worrying about training your employees and having them leave, worry about, you know, what if you don't train them and they actually stay? Right. Uh, and so really, I think you have to be governed by what is it that you want and what is it that you want to create and what is it that you want to support and what is it that you want to achieve? First, we must acknowledge that natural attrition is not something to be overly concerned about, since to have zero attrition would mean that every person you hire is perfectly adapted to the needs of your organization and will remain so throughout the entire employee life cycle. That's not, that's not realistic, right? So instead, um, organizations uh, need to understand that the underlying causes of high attrition rates um, certainly is something that they should be concerned about and they need to understand, right? Uh, so I'm not trying to be dismissive of this topic of attrition, but I think we need to uh, delineate between whether something is a high attrition or any attrition at all. Um, some attrition is healthy because it creates movement within teams. It provides the opportunity to get new ideas into a space. Uh, the second thing I'd say is the best defense is a, a good offense. So in this case, let's ensure that you are continuously attracting talent to the organization based on two things. First, what you need to drive your organizational strategy. So this should be really clear. What are the skill sets? What are the knowledge uh, sets that you need to actually drive and deliver on your strategy? The second thing is what we know is likely to be important to the workforce of tomorrow. Being able to speak to those needs and being able to, to say confidently that you can deliver an experience to a potential employee based on those needs is a really powerful value proposition. And these things need to be embedded in the components of your talent management strategy and you know, be very fluid every day. It needs to exist every day because there's nothing worse than promising something and then under delivering that. So the third thing I'd say is ensure that you promise prospective job seekers you know, ensuring that what you promise them is, is a reality inside your organizations. Because sometimes we see things um, such as your values, it's sometimes a really, you know, strong example of this, where one organization may say that they support X, Y, Z in terms of their values. But in reality, how they operate, what they value on a day-to-day -day basis, what they reward, and how they recognize um, performance within the organization is 
is, is quite the opposite and sometimes even very subjective. Finally, I would encourage organizations to pay attention to the conversations within the organization that occur. Often attrition is directly tied to ineffective interpersonal relationships. How feedback is provided within the organization is one critical area. This is done in a climate of blaming and avoiding uh, failures at all costs, or is it based in a climate of learning from what we did well and what needs to be better? Yes, I think you have given us a lot of food for thought. Um, certainly, it's, uh, the goal, I guess, is not to aim for zero attrition. That might be symptomatic of uh, problems as, as much as uh, excessive attrition is. And that also reminds me of um, a kind of reverse flow, not only from public institutions to private sector, but also being open to, let's say, mid-career hires coming in from the private sector who might bring new skill sets uh, that the public institutions and uh, financial supervisory agencies might need. Um, I recall that in the organization that I worked with, there, there was really a shift from this uh, mindset that you know we train rookie supervisors uh, for decades and they become kind of uh, supervisors for life. They are really in that culture. And there was a, a shift to mid-career hires who then bring in you know, new perspectives. And that has really, I think, enriched the whole environment and also um, responsiveness, I might say, um, from a personal perspective, responsiveness to an understanding of what um, the financial institutions and for the financial industry uh, is looking at um, at the current moment. So, so that's, that's a very useful conversation to have. Um, I, I think, uh, Dane, you touched on technology right at the beginning. And I wonder if you can just elaborate a little bit more on that, because technology is really such an important uh, factor now in the COVID-19 pandemic and in this whole work from home environment. Can technology help with these issues and talents development and retention? And if so, how can technology help? Thank you. Uh, absolutely. More so today, more of the items we've discussed so far can be greatly supported and even enhanced by technology. This said, it's important for us to also acknowledge the limitations of technology in conveying certain parts of a message. So for example, you know, providing feedback may simply seem like a very fact-based or rational exercise. However, this can be the farthest thing from the truth. Uh, when technology, particularly written uh, use of technology, things like email or text or instant messages, can often provide a very narrow band of communication to convey this uh, message. So, you know, important things uh, such as tone or your concern for the individual or the situation um, can really get lost. And so this can lead to readers of the feedback either misunderstanding or, you know, misinterpreting entirely how a piece of feedback was intended and how it could be helpful, which is the more important part, right? Because the whole purpose of feedback is to be helpful. Uh, so unfortunately, this can end up triggering their defense mechanisms and, you know, can make someone more closed off to new ideas or to really listen or hear what the uh, person that's providing the feedback is trying to bring their attention to. So instead, we need to use a combination approach that embraces the benefits of technology in providing real-time, thorough, 
and specific feedback. We can use tools such as video calls to bridge any of these gaps and to ensure that we're always communicating a fulsome message. This ensures that tools like feedback remains focused on changing what is needed and continuing great performance in the future. Circling back to enabling activity-based development in organizations, technology can and must be part of a solution. I believe that organizations begin to tap more into global markets, converting traditional processes to digital. Uh, these platforms will play an important part in being able to access and being able to develop those, uh, those, those new opportunities. So as organizations begin to tap more into global markets, converting traditional processes to digital and adopting a digital first approach when, it's, when possible is going to be an operational imperative in the near future. Yes, we talk in this podcast of the people side of supervision and what I'm hearing uh, from you, Dane, is there is a people side of technology. Uh, that can really bring out the best of uh, technology uh, in supporting some of these talent development and retention processes in any organization. Thank you, Dane. This has been a fascinating conversation. So just to conclude, what are the top three things that you would like financial supervisors to take away today about talents, development, and management in our sector? Thank you for that question. First, I'd say remember that talent management is not just the responsibility of HR. All leaders within the organization should see this as part of their core mandate. Talent, identification, and development is, is part of every people manager's job within the organization. It shouldn't matter where you are located, whether you're uh, a junior level supervisory role to a senior le level executive role. Uh, that responsibility is a shared one. Remember to invite and engage your HR partners into your strategy building sooner to ensure that their strategy will be aligned with yours. The second thing I'd say is take an integrated view. What I mean is development is only part of your talent management strategy. It's not the entire strategy. So let's ensure you have a strong pipeline of potential candidates or successors so that you can promptly fill those vacancies and new opportunities with the talent that possesses and have these strategically important skills, knowledge and abilities, so that you're far more likely to actually deliver in what you communicated as your value proposition. The third thing I'd say is develop an explicit institutional knowledge strategy by utilizing formal and informal methods to collect, maintain, and share this with your employees. Identifying specific topics or skills or areas to help focus the collection of this information. And start with what you have and enhance this over time. Don't wait. Technology can help this, but we need to also remember some of those setbacks or those limitations that we discussed earlier uh, to consider that, you know, there may be other um, tactics that we may need to call on to bridge some of these uh, shortfalls of technology. Instead of focusing on what we can no longer do due to the pandemic or other change drivers today, organizations have an opportunity to reimagine new ways to connect and engage with the workforce of tomorrow. Thank you again, Dane. Those are really some great insights. I'm here today with Dane Hussein, and you have been listening to a Toronto Centre podcast on the go.
Thank you for joining us. Thank you.